Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In his piece, The Subject and Power, Michel Foucault has a section called What Constitutes the Specificity of Power Relations? And when we hear that word specificity, we should be thinking about getting away from universals or things that are supposed to apply everywhere across the board, sort of like a theory of everything, as we say, from the 10,000 feet view from above. And instead, we have other ways of talking about this. Getting granular is a very contemporary metaphor for it. Or we talk about drilling down. Usually the metaphor is from going from the top to the bottom because we typically think of the generality being high up and the specificity being at the level that we live. And Foucault begins this section by saying, listen, there's no such thing as power as such. He says there's no such entity as power with or without a capital letter, global, massive, or diffused, concentrated, or distributed. And then he goes on to say something really important. Power exists. Now, so he's saying there is power, but power exists only as exercised by some on others, only when it is put into action, even though, of course, it is inscribed in a field of sparse available possibilities underpinned by permanent structures. We're going to come to that possibilities thing in just a moment. And here he's going to tell us a number of what power isn't as he works into his way of understanding how we should grasp power relations. And so he begins by talking about consent, which you notice, you know, we can diagram in this way. Consent would belong on the side of those who power is exercised over. And he says that power is not a matter of consent. It is not in itself. That's a very important term in itself. The renunciation of freedom, transfer of rights, or power of each and all delegated to a few. Now, what is he getting at there? Well, these are some typical ways of understanding power that generally come from modern theories, modern philosophy and political theory in particular, where power is something that is transferred from those who are governed to those who govern or rule, those who exercise power. You could think of Thomas Hobbes as being a prime example of this. There is an original agreement or compact or contract in order to preserve one's life and one's property and freedom that gives power to a sovereign. And Foucault is saying, now listen, it's not impossible for that to happen, but that's not really at the core of power. He says there is a possibility consent may be a condition for the exercise or the maintenance of a power relation. It can happen there. The relationship of power may be an effect of a prior or permanent consent, but it's not by nature, the manifestation of a consensus. So this doesn't rule consent out entirely. It just says, listen, there's a lot of cases where that is how power relations are structured. That's not the essence of it. 
What about going the other direction, looking at the one who rules, he says, and looking at some violence that must have been the primitive form of power, its permanent secret, and last resort, that which in the final analysis appears as its real nature when it throws aside its mask and shows itself as what it really is. And then he says, well, there's a difference here. What defines a relationship of power is that it's a mode of action that does not act directly and immediately on others. So we're going to come back to this in, in just a moment. How does it act on actions? He says a relationship of violence acts upon a body or upon things. It forces, it bends, it breaks, it destroys, or it closes off possibility. Its opposite pole can only be passivity. If it comes up against any resistance, it has no option but to try to break it down. So violence is not the same thing as power, nor is it its secret origin, or as he said, its last resort. When all other things fail, then you punch somebody or you break them down in some way. That's not to say that violence can't be part of power, just as much as consent can be part of power. But that is not its core. Why not? Because the power relation, as he says, coming back to this, he says, power acts upon their actions, upon the actions of others, an action upon an action on possible or actual future or present actions. And then he goes on a little bit further and he says, a power relationship can only be articulated on the basis of two elements that are indispensable if it was really to be a power relationship, that the other, the one over whom power is exercised, is recognized and maintained to the very end as a subject who acts. So in a genuine power relationship, it's not to say that everything is perfectly balanced or anything like that, or that violence isn't part of it, or that consent isn't part of it, but what's really key to it is that both sides are subjects and are recognized as such. That is, subjects who have agency, subjects who can do things. I exercise power on you by getting you to do things that I want you to do. But you are the, are the subject who does it. Are you a totally free subject who can jump out of the power relationship and look down on it from above? Not necessarily. Although, you know, perhaps in some power relationships, that could be a possibility. And so he goes on and he says, the establishing of power relationships does not exclude the use of violence any more than it does the obtaining of consent. No doubt the exercise of power can never do without one or the other, often both at the same time. But these, consent and violence, do not constitute the principle or basic nature of power. So what is the basic nature of power? He tells us that it operates on the field, and here he uses a, a singular, but I think we could expand this to a plural, fields of possibilities that the different subjects actually have, which means that there's always conditions, there's always constraints. We exist, as people say, in a society. Usually they're saying that to remind us not to be jerks, but in this case we can say we're always within matrices of possibilities, some of which are closed off for us and some of which are opened up for us or even assumed not as possibilities, but just as what one does. And so he goes on and he says, these are fields of possibilities in which the behavior of active subjects is able to inscribe itself. How does it inscribe itself? By acting, by doing things. Inscribe is a writing metaphor right there. It is a set of actions, again, he says, on possible actions. Power incites, 
It induces, it seduces, it makes easier or more difficult. It releases or contrives, makes more possible or less. In the extreme, it constrains or forbids absolutely, but it is always a way of acting upon one or more acting subjects by virtue of their acting or being capable of action. And then he says one more time, a set of actions upon other actions. I'd like to go back to this little sketch of the ways, the modalities in which power is exercised on this field of possibilities. So he says, it incites. Inciting is getting something, it's provoking something, it induces similar, it seduces, it draws out from the other, it tempts it. It makes it easier or more difficult. This is a very important one. The phenomenon of nudging in our time can easily be seen as a expression of Foucauldian power relations. Nudging is when you make things just a little bit more difficult or a little bit more easy to get people to behave in certain ways. It releases or contrives, makes more probable or less. Other ways in which the action of another is being cajoled or being conditioned, right? In the extreme, as he points out, it constrains or forbids absolutely. And this is where we should jump ahead to look at something else that he says. He tells us that in the absolute limit of slavery, where there is no freedom whatsoever, we don't really have power relations anymore, right? He tells us that where the determining factors are exhaustive, there's no relationship of power. Slavery is not a power relationship when a man is in chains, only when he has some possible mobility, even a chance of escape. Now, he's not talking about, oh, you've got chains on you, therefore you're an absolutely constrained subject. You could take the chains and strangle your captors. You could whip the chains around and hit your fellow slaves. There are possibilities. What he's talking about there is when somebody is completely constrained, essentially turned into an automaton, that's no longer a power relationship. That is a relationship merely of violence or domination, right? One has been turned completely into an object. When there is still subjectivity there being acknowledged and treated as a subject, it is a still a power relation, even if you are in chains. So that's quite important to look at. He also tells us several other important matters. He tells us that the equivocal nature of the term conduct or conduct is one of the best aids for coming to terms with the specificity of power relations. To conduct is at the same time to lead others, right? And then he says, and a way of behaving within a more or less open field of possibility. So the exercise of power is a conduct of conducts. The subject who is acting on the side of imposing power, the, you might say, dominant subject, is leading, is determining, is ruling what the conducts of the other subject in their action can be. And it's interesting if you think about actions as individual actions, but also as tendencies, habits, intentional chains of actions. Those are all what we would call conduct, right? So he goes on and he says that power, the exercise of power is a conduct of conducts and a management of possibilities. It's less a confrontation between two adversaries or their mutual engagement than a question of 
government. And he says, we have to be careful with this word government. Don't think automatically the government or the place where you are. We have to have a very broad sense to this. Government did not refer only to political structures or the management of states. It designated the way in which the conduct of individuals or groups might be directed. So we can talk about, he says, the government of children. We would say nowadays upbringing, right? Or of souls that we'd say spiritual advising or something like that of communities of families of the sick. It covered not only the legitimately constituted forms of political or economic subjection, but also modes of action more or less considered and calculated that were destined to act upon the possibilities of action of other people. So just to pause for a moment, think about when you enter a restaurant with certain expectations and you are conducted to a table where then you are invited to do what? Anything you like? No, you should look at the menu if the menu has been brought to you. And there's an entire like set of rules that are completely unwritten. How long do you have to wait for the server to come and bring you some water and then ask you what drinks or appetizers you would like? And when do you flag down the manager or bring somebody else in? These are all, in addition to whatever else they may be, power relations at work, right? And there's a governmentality to this, which could be superimposed upon by other governmentalities. For example, the existence of health inspectors who come in and check up on things from the state or the city, right? Which is essentially another kind of state as far as what Foucault is talking about. So this is a very rich concept here, this governmentality or government. So he says the relationship proper to power would be sought not on the side of violence or struggle, nor that of voluntary contracts, but rather in the area of that singular mode of action, neither warlike nor juridical, which is government. And he says, power is the government of men by other men in the broadest sense of the term. And this brings us to another key element, freedom. Power is exercised only over free subjects and only insofar as they are free. Now notice what Foucault says about this. He doesn't mean free in some sort of abstract sense where everything they want to do is possible for them and they can always choose between. It's not that sort of silly nonsense. Real freedom is always within constraints, always within possibilities that we can push against and sometimes break through, but sometimes push back on us and constrain us. So he says, we mean individual or collective subjects who are faced with a field of possibility, field of possibilities in which several kinds of conduct, several ways of reacting and modes of behavior are available when they have a possibility of doing otherwise than they actually chose to do, they have enough freedom for them to be called free in this case. So he says, there is no face-to-face -face confrontation of power and freedom as mutually exclusive, freedom disappearing everywhere power ex exercised, but a much more complicated interplay. Freedom may well appear as a condition for the exercise of power, at the same time it's precondition, since freedom must exist for power to be exerted, and also its permanent support without the possibility of recalcitrance, that is being resentful or not giving in all the way. Power would be equivalent to a physical determination. And so he says, the crucial problem of power is not that of voluntary servitude. How could we seek to be slaves? He says, at the very heart of the power relationship and constantly provoking it. People want to use power because of these two things are what? The recalcitrance of the will and the intransigence 
of freedom. We never quite know what other people that we want to behave in reasonable, the way we see it, constrained ways are going to do. The waiter brings our waters and plunks them down and some water spills out and gets on the table and we look at each other. Are they gonna do anything about this? Are they gonna mop it up? And then they walk off, tut tut about it or you know, complain about it or whatever. We are involved in power relations, and we just got to see the, intra- the, the intransigence of the will, no, the recalcitrance of the will, and the intransigence of freedom at play, right? And we could go on and on and on with examples. We could take a restaurant and unpack it as an incredibly rich set of power relations that are also part of larger ones that have to do with fields of possibilities. The one other thing that I want to bring up is Foucault says that we might use a different word. Instead of talking about an antagonism, it would be better to speak of an agonism. Agon is a contest, is a struggle, right? Of a relationship that is at the same time mutual incitement and struggle, less of a face-to-face confrontation that paralyzes both sides than a permanent provocation. So he thinks that if we get really specific about what power relations involve, we actually get to see something like the essence of it, where we have at least two subjects acknowledge the subjects, not necessarily in the same sort of position as each other. And there is a determination, actions uh, on other actions, rather just a subjects on subjects. It's the possible fields of their actions, the fields of possibilities that power really bears upon. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.